Welcome back, folks. Welcome back. My name is John Maynard. These are my manias. And this is episode three. And we are going to get into what I think is a truly fascinating area. And um, that involves mainly uh, the uh, philosophy of Rene Descartes and specifically his meditations on first philosophy. And honestly, um, mainly to do with sort of the first part of that meditation. The reason I say that is uh, when I was uh, taking my first uh, philosophy course way back in 1995, I was fortunate enough to have a great teacher uh, by the name of Donna Baker at Lansing Community College. Despite what you may think, again, let's revert back to our logical fallacies about thinking we can assume the validity of an education uh, received at a community college and remember that uh, it has much more to do with the individual you're receiving the knowledge from or, or being taught by. Uh, in this case, uh, Ms. Baker was uh, exceptional and bright and energetic about the topic and um, basically, um, you know, wanted us to see it as well as we could and realize um, what sort of help it can make when you are existing in this world and trying to understand it more clearly. Um, and among discussions that were had in that class, it was the general consensus, as I understood it at the time, that we need not exactly pay as stringent attention to uh, the later part of Descartes' meditations. Um, and the reason for that is that it isn't clear, uh, and, and when I say that, it, it it isn't the clear consensus of people who study these things in, um, you know, mind-numbing detail uh, that he has actually succeeded in um, rebuilding his belief structure. So when you, if you, and I encourage you to do this, to go out and actually download a copy of this, freely available. Um, Yale has it on their website. So, you know, Rene Descartes Meditations, uh, First Philosophy, yale.edu, put it in Google, you'll find it, download the PDF. And, you know, read it in his own words. But what you will find when you do that is that part of his title is, uh, you know, in which, you know, the existence of a God and, and therefore blah, blah, blah is, um, is proven or whatever. Yeah, well, it's not exactly clear uh, that he has been able to rebuild uh, his former way of thinking to include the existence of an all-powerful God. And that's why, you know, it's my contention. I think it's, it's fairly, um, you know, uh, again, if you're going to use this logical system of reasoning, it's, it's uh, not really debatable that we can't prove that a God exists and we can't prove that a God doesn't exist. It's one of those things, quite frankly, that is so unknowable that no uh, philosopher, I mean, and, and some of the best, you know, uh, capital T, capital B, the best have tried. Uh, that's not to say that you all shouldn't make your own effort because, it, you know, don't take it. Don't take them at their word. You know, who knows one of you, uh, if you dedicate yourself to this idea long enough and, and put your brain to work may become the best. You may be able to offer a uh, ir irrefutable, logical, reasonable argument that exactly, you know, either uh, proves or disproves the existence of a, of a god. Um, but the thing to know about this is that Descartes had a, uh, a very real 
and, and pressing need to ensure that he was not arguing uh, against the existence of a God. And the reason is that he was operating in the year 1641 in France and therefore under uh, control and, um, uh, you know, knowledge, again, was, was, uh, was, a, was a sole uh, a possession of the Catholic Church at this time. And if you did something so basic as to, you know, uh, even postulate, you know, or, or come close to denying the existence of a God, well, clearly that is a very real and very, um, you know, under, uh, you can understand why the Catholic Church would not want people to promulgate that. And um, particularly at the time, you know, if you wanted to promulgate that, um, you would more than likely uh, be banished or executed in a, um, and the execution would not be pleasant. Uh, it would be um, some sort of a horrible, you know, um, torturous affair. And again, this was to show demonstrably to the rest of the people that these things were not to be questioned. They were beyond the realm of questioning. Um, however, the Catholic Church also, in, in, if you go into the hierarchy of, of the church and the, you know, bishops and cardinals and popes, well, these are still people who are um, actually, despite what you might think, you know, especially down the hall in cloisters and little abbeys and places where people weren't vocalizing these things. Um, well, that was the only place that any intellectual thinking of any kind was going on at the time. Uh, you know, this started to change, you know, with the advent of universities, things like this. But I mean, for the most part, you still had such a large influence coming from uh, this Catholic church and the, the need that it had to ensure that its, you know, basic tenets weren't questioned, um, that you would find, you know, uh, reasonably intelligent and, and cogent um, people uh, really pursuing these philosophical strands of thought. Because the thing is, um, you know, if, if you are sort of an intellectual Christian at that time and, you know, well, okay, you want to be able to intellectually then believe the same thing that you are believing, you know, because it's faith and, and it's what you've been taught. Um, you need to be able to reconcile those within within yourself because if you can, it, it's going to call into question one or the other, right? Either your, um, you know, your philosophical notions are, you know, invalid and incorrect or your religious notions are invalid or incorrect. Um, so again, this is something that Descartes uh, is is struggling with. And and again, my, my point in saying all of that was simply to say that it isn't really clear uh, from a you know from a pure logic and reason standpoint that he does indeed succeed with rebuilding the um, the system of beliefs and the system the way that we can know things. Um, after he tears them down, it's not clear that he's able to rebuild them. So we are primarily concerned here with the tearing down of these things. Now, I will uh, offer you one word of caution, and that is that um, from personal experience, uh, if you are able to follow along and successfully go with this theory and really put yourself into the mindset of Descartes, um, it will absolutely uh, throw you for a loop. I mean a loop. And this is where I sort of teased this at the end of the last episode. Um, we're talking about, say, um, the Matrix film. Now, I know that 
you know, it may be that some of you listening to this haven't seen it and whatever. Um, but I think it's fairly popular and, you know, uh, probably a lot of you can relate to this. Um, it's interesting because the, the course I referenced earlier that I took in 1995 with uh, Professor Donna Baker at LCC uh, just so happened, um, or excuse me, it wasn't that course uh, exactly. It was a, a second course that I had taken with her in, um, in ethics um, in the year 1999 just so happened to coincide with, um, you know, the matrix coming out. It might've been 98. I'm not, you know, that doesn't really matter. The point is that I've never been one to pay attention to movies particularly because I don't, it's personal opinion, but you know, for the most part, it's time that I think can be, you know, better spent elsewhere. Um, but I agreed with, uh, to go see this movie with a friend, um, in the theater because we had had a discussion in our philosophy class, uh, in the ethics class about, um, you know, this idea of Descartes and um, some of his postulations. And one of my classmates pointed out that, in fact, something that ended up being, you know, plain to see, that this Matrix film was, in fact, based in large part on or operated on the basic premise that Rene Descartes had formulated so long ago, okay? And we're going to get into that, but um, one of the ways that uh, you can see it plainly is in the scene where, you know, Morpheus is asking, you know, the, the Neo character, Keanu Reeves, uh, you know, what, um, he said, you know, to imagine uh, that you're in a dream, you know, have you ever had a dream that was so real that, you know, you thought that it was, that you actually, if you were able to take not, you know, if you were able to never wake up from that, right? If you stayed in that state, from then on, you know, I think we've all had a dream where we, you know, at the end of it, we grab, you know, a, a gazillion gold coins or something and we're rich or we're the, whatever our, you know, fantasies are, where they, they actually occur and we wake up and we genuinely feel ripped off or taken advantage, like, dude, no, I had that, you know, I had that sack of gold coins, what in the actual fuck? Um, you know, and these things are, you know, relatively, um, therefore easy to understand. All that Descartes is saying is that, okay, let's say that, you know, you're in your, you know, sack of gold coin fantasy and you never wake up. Okay. And you stay in that dream. Well, what happens at that point would be that you would not be able to distinguish in any way, shape or form that versus, you know, a real waking existence, which begs the question, uh, is it therefore possible that, everything that you see and perceive as a reality and as, as being, you know, as close as you can get it to real isn't actually a dream. And, you know, who's to say that your dreams aren't, in fact, the real world, quote unquote, right? Um, and so he, he goes through a lot of these things. We're going to jump into them. Um, but I wanted to tie in that little little matrix teaser. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of reference back to that in different places. Um, you'll see it pop up. And, um, the only reason I do that is, well, one, I sort of teased it at the last of the end up, uh, end of the last episode, and I don't want to, you know, uh, disappoint anybody. Uh, and two, like I said, I'm, I am seriously in an earnest trying to make this uh, type of thinking, this critical thinking, um, available to more people. And sometimes one way you can do that is to, you know, offer examples to which everybody or most people can relate, and um, and. You know, that's one way that you can start to understand some of these things. So, um, 
let's jump into his uh, meditations, okay? Now, the first part of his meditations uh, involve uh, what he called uh, those things which can be called into doubt, okay? Um, and basically, he, as I said, you have to picture Descartes, okay? It's 1641. You know, he's in France, you know, um, just picture a, you know, the sort of interior of a Middle Ages, you know, um, abode uh, of somebody of the upper class that, you know, can afford, you know, a, a nice fire and, uh, you know, perhaps a comfortable seat, you know, and he has his quill and his paper and um, his brain and he's going to sit in this state uh, for many days, and he is literally going to think like nobody has ever thought before. He's going to dedicate himself uh, as purely and as openly and as honestly as he can um, to pursuing, you know, what he thinks of as absolute truth or knowledge. Again, capital K, capital T. And um, he starts this with, you know, what can be called into doubt. So he's thinking about the number of falsehoods he believed during his life and how his body um, was faulty in, in helping build up these falsehoods, okay? Um, and, and one of these, uh, one, of, one of the examples that he gets, that he gives, you know, is that, um, you know, let's say the moon, right? Well, uh, one might be tempted to believe that the moon in, in some sense, is closer to us than, say, you know, if we're in North America and you ask somebody, well, is the, you know, is the moon uh, closer to you than, say, the continent of Africa? Um, you know, your, your eye would tell you in some sense that the moon is closer because it's, it's bigger and it's visible. And Africa seems further away and, and invisible, right? Um, but we know that's not true. And all he's saying is that if if the eye itself has that one chance, remember when he is looking to tear down his system of belief, he, he is um, he is operating from uh, uh, mind work that, or a, a, you know, sort of a framework that, um, if anything, that he formerly, you know, if, if any piece of his eye or his senses uh, has deceived him in any way, even one time then you chuck it out. You're done. I mean, he was very, he brought a razor to this thing, right? He didn't mess around. Um, and so, you know, in, in a sense, that is, um, uh, you know, you, most of us don't even have the, I, I, honestly, it's difficult for me as much as I like to uh, dig deep and understand uh, for me to envision that someone had this way of being able to to think, right? And part of this, I am sure, is a result of the fact that back in, you know, 1600s, 1700s, uh, you know, in, in a sense, it was a, a more horrible time to live. Uh, but for somebody like Descartes, who had the advantages of, you know, being um, in the sort of uh, upper class, um, he, he had the ability, therefore, to, to uh, exist in a much more quiet uh, world, a slower paced world, uh, 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 you know, if, if many of us were transported back to it, might think that things worked at a snail's pace, um, because, you know, you've, you no know, electricity, no, you know, automated, 
systems of transportation, you know, that you could get to a place as fast as a horse could get you there. Um, there's no telegraph, there's no worldwide system, you know, so um, knowledge is, as it's available is, is sort of, you know, like a vein of silver, right? You have to just kind of be lucky enough to stumble across it and you hope that it's rich, right? Um, you know, not like now where, you know, literally everything that, you know, with some exceptions has ever been written is accessible to everybody in the world, which is extremely uh, amazing and powerful if you think about it. Um, you also have to, of course, be careful because, you know, uh, <laughs> it can be overwhelming and you can spend your time going down various rabbit trails and, and um, you know, as we learn, chasing after red herrings um, in pursuit of this truth. And sometimes it's helpful to know uh, that, that there exists at least, you know, some of these people, uh, Descartes included, that you know, uh, anybody uh, who has, you know, devoted themselves to, to basic academic study uh, will have to agree, you know, what their contribution has been and therefore the importance of it. Uh, we're getting way off topic now. Um, but I, as I said before, like to go to the um, original. And uh, what I mean by this is this is Descartes writing now. Um, and I'd like to quote uh, rather extensively from it, because uh, as I said, it, it, the language may seem almost incomprehensible, but if you really quiet your mind, go to the most reasoning, uh, patient, logical uh, place, you know, and, and allow that part of your mind to, to enter into these ideas, um, I think that anybody can grasp them. They're not ungraspable, okay? So, here we go. Um... I'm going to pick it up with, uh, you know, his diving into these meditations. Um, first, I'll read his synopsis of what his meditations are, because these are obviously going to help us. Um, <clears throat> I'm quoting now. In the first meditation, I set forth the reasons for which we may, generally speaking, doubt about all things and especially about material things, at least so long as we have no other foundations for the sciences than those which we have hitherto possessed. But although the utility of a doubt, which is so general, does not at first appear, it is at the same time very great, inasmuch as it delivers us from every kind of prejudice, and sets out for us a very simple way by which the mind may detach itself from the senses, and finally, it makes it impossible for us ever to doubt those things which we have once discovered to be true. In the second meditation, mind, which, making use of the liberty which pertains to it, takes for granted that all those things of whose existence it has the least doubt are non-existent, recognizes that it is, however, absolutely impossible that it does not itself exist. This point is likewise of the greatest moment, inasmuch as by this means a distinction is easily drawn between the things which pertain to mind, that is to say, to the intellectual nature, and those which pertain to body. And what he's talking about here, folks, is what some consider the seminal moment of this whole exercise. And you'll see it reflected on my Facebook page, Kogiko, Kogiko, 
cogito, cogito ergo sum. My God, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. In essence, he has reduced his um, ability to know anything at all down to this very fine point, which is, at the very least, what he can know, what we can know as human individuals, is that we are a thing, we are a creature, and that we do think. Okay, that's not a lot to know, right? Uh, but it's helpful. It's helpful in knowing that, in fact, this, uh, this part of us, uh, this thinking part of us, is real. You know, it is as real as uh, you can possibly ever set out to prove. So let's let him uh, himself get into uh, his uh, meditations. Um, so he starts right off and again, seeking to tear everything down. Meditation one, I'm quoting now, of the things which may be brought within the sphere of the doubtful. It is now some years since I detected how many were the false beliefs that I had from my earliest youth admitted as true, and how doubtful was everything I had since constructed on this basis. And from that time I was convinced that I must once for all seriously undertake to rid myself of all the opinions which I had formerly accepted and commence to build anew from the foundation if I wanted to establish any firm and permanent structure in the sciences. But as this enterprise appeared to be a very great one, I waited until I had attained an age so mature that I could not hope that at any later date I should be better fitted to execute my design. This reason caused me to delay so long that I should feel that I was doing wrong were I to occupy in deliberation the time that yet remains for me for action. Today then, since very opportunely for the plan I have in view, I have delivered my mind from every care and am happily agitated by no passions. And since I have procured for myself an assured leisure in a peaceable retirement, I shall at last seriously and freely address myself to the general upheaval of all of my former opinions. Now, for this object, it is not necessary that I should show that all of these things are false. I shall perhaps never arrive at this end, but inasmuch as reason already persuades me that I ought no less carefully to withhold my assent from matters which are not entirely certain and indubitable than from those which appear to be manifestly to be false, if I am able to find in each one some reason to doubt, this will suffice to justify my rejecting the whole. And for that end, it will not be requisite that I should examine each in particular, which would be an endless undertaking, for owing to the fact that the destruction of the foundations of necessity brings with it the downfall of the rest of the edifice, I shall only in the first place attack those principles upon which all of my former opinions rested. All that up to the present time I have accepted as most true and certain I have learned either from the senses or through the senses. But it is sometimes proved to me that these senses are deceptive, and it is wiser not to trust entirely to anything by which we have once been deceived. But it may be that although the senses sometimes deceive us concerning things which are hardly perceptible or very far away, there are yet many others to be met with as to which we cannot reasonably have any doubt, although we recognize them by their means.
For example, there is the fact that I am here, seated by the fire, attired in a dressing gown, having this paper in my hands and other similar matters. And how could I deny that these hands and this body are mine, were it not perhaps that I compare myself to certain persons devoid of sense? Uh, I'm interjecting here. He's talking about crazy people here, okay? Whose cerebella are so troubled and clouded by the violent vapors of black bile that they constantly assure us that they think they are kings when they are really quite poor, or that they are clothed in purple when they are really without covering, or who imagine that they have an earthenware head or are nothing but pumpkins or are made of glass. But they are mad, and I should not be any the less insane were I to follow examples so extravagant. At the same time, I must remember that I am a man and that consequently I am in the habit of sleeping. And in my dreams, representing to myself the same things or sometimes even less probable things than do those who are insane in their waking moments. How often has it happened to me that in the night I dreamt that I found myself in this particular place that I was dressed and seated near the fire, whilst in reality I was lying undressed in bed. At this moment, it does indeed seem to me that it is with eyes awake that I am looking at this paper, that this head which I move is not asleep, that it is deliberately and of set purpose, that I extend my hand and perceive it. What happens in sleep does not appear so clear nor so distinct as does all of this. But in thinking over this, I remind myself that on many occasions, I have in sleep been deceived by similar illusions. And in dwelling carefully on this reflection, I see manifestly that there are no certain indications by which we may clearly distinguish wakefulness from sleep, that I am lost in astonishment. And my astonishment is such that it is almost capable of persuading me that I now dream. Let us assume that... So let us uh, now then assume uh, that we are asleep and that all these particulars, ergo, that we open our eyes, shake our head, extend our hands, and so on, are but false delusions. And let us reflect that possibly neither our hands nor our whole body are such as they appear to be. At the same time, we must at least confess that the things which are represented to us in sleep are like painted representations, which can only have been formed as the counterparts of something real and true, and that in this way, those general things at least, uh, in other words, eyes, a head, hands, and a whole body, are not imaginary things, but things really existent. For as a matter of fact, painters, even when they study with the greatest skill to represent um, sirens and satyrs by forms the most strange and extraordinary, cannot give them natures which are entirely new, but merely make a certain medley of the members of different animals, or if their imagination is extravagant enough to invent something so novel that nothing similar has ever before been seen, and that then their work represents a thing purely fictitious and absolutely false, it is certain all the same that the colors of which this is composed are necessarily real. And for the same reason, although these general things to wit, a body, eyes, a head, hands, and such like may be imaginary, we are bound at the same time to confess, to confess that there are at least some other objects yet more simple and more universal, which are real and true, 
And of these, just in the same way as with certain real colors, all these images of things which dwell in our thoughts, whether true and real or false and fantastic, are formed. Uh, to such a class of things pertains corp corporeal nature in general uh, and its extension, the figure of extended things, their quantity or magnitude and number, as also the place in which they are, the time which measures their duration, and so on. Okay? So he has... Um, absolutely set out here to to doubt that which he may know as as being real in a fundamental sense and um you know that uh he is dwelling in this world uh, that may in fact just be a fiction or a fantasy so now he starts to turn his head i'm skipping ahead um uh to the next part of this sort of uh, argument and that this is um, where we get to his postulation or his his positing of a um, evil genius or what's called the evil genius theory. Um, this is a seminal work in Western philosophical tradition and, and uh, history because it has had so much impact. You will see it in um, many different forms. Uh, there's a form of this that's slightly more modern. It's called the brain in a vat theory, okay? Um, the evil genius theory, the brain in a vat theory, um, they're both sort of coming from the same place, which is to say that it's entirely possible and, and, and in fact unprovable that you and your existence as you, as you are perceiving it now in this world um, are in fact being deceived by somebody or something. He calls it an evil genius um, in The Matrix, uh, we can see this with um, the, the point where Neo wakes up and looks about him to see all of these other pods of people that are lying in translucent jelly and hooked up to these cords and cables in, you know, that go directly to their brain. And they've been put into this sort of uh, comatose state so that their actual bodies are lying off in, you know, the the great expanse of space and universe somewhere unknown um, and are actually, in fact, you know, sitting in this jelly and, um, you know, having these machines breathe and, um, uh, you know, whatnot for them to keep these bodies alive, whereas the brain itself is being hooked up to this, um, you know, incredibly powerful uh, connection to the back of their stem uh, that basically pumps in everything we see and feel and how we react and interact and makes a, and it's so convincing that it's, you know, perceived as the real world or the real experience. Um, and so at this point, it's best to just let him say this in his own words, because as I said, this is, this is an extremely um, interesting concept. Um, Quoting now, nevertheless, I have long fixed in my mind the belief that an all-powerful God existed by whom I have be, uh, been created, such as I am. But how do I know that he has not brought it to pass that there is no earth, no heaven, no extended body, no magnitude, no place, and that nevertheless... I possess the perceptions of all these things and that they seem to me to ex exist just exactly as I now see them. And besides, as I sometimes imagine that others deceive themselves in the things which they think they know best, how do I know that I am not deceived 
every time that I add two and three, or count the sides of a square, or judge of things yet simpler, if anything simpler can be imagined. But possibly God has not desired that I should be thus deceived, for he is said to be supremely good. If, however, it is contrary to his goodness to have made me such that I constantly deceive myself, it would also appear to be contrary to his goodness to permit me to be sometimes deceived. And nevertheless, I cannot doubt that he does permit this. Um, there may indeed be those who would prefer to deny the existence of a God so powerful rather than believe that all other things are uncertain. Uh, let's not worry about them for now. That's me paraphrasing. Um, and let's, let's, I'm going to start to paraphrase. Let's say, for instance, that all here is said of God is a fable. Um, nevertheless, in whatever way uh, I have arrived at this state of being, whether you want to attribute it to fate or accident or make out that it is a continual succession of antecedents by some other method, um, since to err and deceive oneself is a defect, it is clear that the greater will be, pro be the probability of my being so imperfect as to deceive myself ever, as is the author to whom they assign my origin the less powerful. To these reasons, I have certainly nothing to reply, but at the end, I feel constrained to confess that there is nothing in all that I formerly believed to be true of which I cannot in some measure doubt, and that not merely through want of thought or through levity, but for reasons which are powerful and maturely considered, so that henceforth I ought not the less carefully to refrain from giving credence to these opinions than to that which is manifestly false if I desire to arrive at any certainty in the sciences. Um, so again, he's, he's talking about the, um, here, here he gets into the evil genius proper, and I'm going to quote uh, directly from him. Uh, quoting now, I shall then suppose not that God, who is supremely good and the fountain of truth, but some evil genius, not less powerful than deceitful, has employed his whole energies in deceiving me. I shall consider that the heavens, the earth, colors, figures, sound, and all other external things are naught but the illusions and dreams of which this genius has availed himself in order to lay traps for my credulity. I shall consider myself as having no hands, no eyes, no flesh, no blood, nor any senses, yet falsely believing myself to possess all of these things. I shall remain obstinately attached to this idea. And if by this means it is not in my power to arrive at the knowledge of any truth, I may at last do what is in my power, in other words, suspend my judgment, and with firm purpose avoid giving credence to any false thing or being opposed upon by this arch deceiver, however powerful and deceptive he may be. But this task is a laborious one, and insensibly a certain lazitude leads me into the course of my ordinary life. And just as a captive who in sleep enjoys an imaginary dream and an imaginary liberty, when he begins to suspect that his liberty is but a dream, fears to awaken, and conspires with these agreeable illusions that the deception may be prolonged. 
So insensibly of my own accord, I fall back into my former opinions. And I dread waking from this slumber, lest the laborious wakefulness which would follow the tranquility of this repose should have to be spent not in daylight, but in the excessive darkness of the difficulties which have been discussed. And um, he then basically goes to bed and says, what in the world have I just done? You know, he is legitimately concerned at this point that he has blown up everything that he thought he knew. And again, this is a fellow that considered himself and considers himself, you know, fairly perceptive, right? Fairly bright. He's, he's, he's trying his, his dogged best not to, um, you know, fall into deceptive traps and not to be um, deceived in any way, shape, or form. And yet he's found that when you really get down to it, uh, it, it's hard, if not impossible, to really, you know, formulate or believe in much of anything. Now, the reason this is important is because I think that this is an end um, that many of us will arrive at in, in our society. And um, the danger, of course, is saying that, you know, because you can't definitively say that any of it, you know, means anything and you can't really argue for anything, that therefore that means that everything should be okay and acceptable, okay? Well, first of all, we know that's not true. That's a logical fallacy. It's a bad jump, you know, in rational thinking. Um, you know, just because we can't know certain things, you know, absolutely doesn't therefore imply that, you know, uh, everybody can just go off the rails and start going apeshit, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's not a, that doesn't follow. Um, it's just saying that um, because we've now established this bar as being so high as, as not being able to demonstrably prove or know things, or, or it's extremely difficult to demonstrably prove and know things, um, that instead of, you know, going the other way and saying, well, then to hell with it, you know, we need to, we need to go, well, okay, we need to work as hard as possible to make sure that those things which we're asking others to believe in and, um, and support and, and, especially, as I've said before, if we're asking them to act in one way or another, well, then we need to, this tells me we need to make the best possible logical arguments, right? Um, And in that sense, he's also saying that, you know, therefore you you need to sort of ignore uh, these uh, ruminations and, and, um, you know, uh, judgments and pronouncements that are coming from within you. As I've said before, we mistake for being us. Uh, and the reason is that they are capable of deceiving. In fact, um, you know, are in some ways concerned with deception. So anyway, he, he, wait, he goes to bed because he's just sort of had it at this point and, and is probably feeling pretty grim. Um, and so he wakes up the next morning and he starts meditation number two, which is the nature, it's uh, of the nature of the human mind and that it is more easily known than the body. Now, here's where he redeems himself. What we're working towards here is his seminal breakthrough, right? Kogiko, ergo, sum. I think, therefore, I am. So, again, I am going to um, quote uh, from him. You need, uh, if you really want to dig deep in here to um, to really, you know, uh, read his own works. I'm not going to quote the entire thing. It's not that long, actually. It's just, you know, 
Um, the nature of a podcast being what it is, you know, if you wanted to hear a fellow read from a book, you would just go get Meditations on First Philosophy as an audiobook, right? <laughs> and and that's not what you're after here, or, you know, I wouldn't assume so. It's certainly not my purpose. Um, I'm going to try to sort of, uh, I guess, give you some synopses of, of, of where he is in leading up to this um, to this thing. And first of all, let's just talk about where he is uh, in his um, estimation, you know, after, after waking up, the morning after waking up, you know, discovering this, uh, this tremendous uh, revelation in the first meditation. Um, he says, quoting now, The meditation of yesterday filled my mind with so many doubts that it is no longer in my power to forget them. And yet I do not see in what manner I can resolve them. And just as if I had all of a sudden fallen into very deep water, I am so disconcerted that I can neither make certain of setting my feet on the bottom, nor can I swim and so support myself on the surface. I shall nevertheless make an effort and follow anew the same path as that on which yesterday I entered. Uh, in other words, I shall proceed by setting aside all that in which the least doubt could be supposed to exist, just as if I had discovered it was false, absolutely false. And I shall ever follow in this road until I have met with something which is certain, or at least if I can do nothing else until I have learned for certain that there is nothing in this world that is certain. Archimedes, in order that he might draw the terrestrial globe out of its place and transport it elsewhere, demanded only that one point should be fixed and immovable. In the same way, I shall have the right to conceive high hopes if I am happy enough to discover one thing only, which is certain and indebutable. Uh, okay, so we're going to, again, skip ahead, and we're going to get to um, the point where he arrives at this truth. This is going to be a longer quote, but again, um, what draws me to somebody like Descartes is that they don't feel the need to necessarily speak um, using concepts of, uh, you know, brevity. Um, sometimes less isn't more, you know, sometimes in order to explain precisely or as precisely as one can, um, you need to think long and hard and deeply and however you want to envision it. Um, but again, there, there are reasons why these things can't be known by watching television because the people there uh, even if they're, if, even if they are in earnest, have such a short amount of time to try to get them through to you, and most of what people are shouting at us in either social media or elsewhere are extremely condensed and to the point, and you know could be you know representing you know sort of an accurate way of thinking, um, but when you when you are forced just by necessity, just by the sort of overall attention deficit um, that this you know, country and, and, and a lot of others are facing, um, just know that, you know, it, it's fine to, to take shortcuts. But in the end, if you want to get to different truths, you really need to spend a, a fair amount of time in thought and, and um, you know, and in following a thought, right? Not, not just thinking, not just, uh, you know, the act of sort of blindly, you know, contemplating things, but with some, uh, direction with some, you know, uh, purpose in mind. Right. Um, uh, at any rate, 
here I am going to quote extensively, and it's going to lead um, directly into his seminal moment. So hang on to your seats, folks. Here we go. Quoting now, and what more? I shall exercise my imagination in order to see if I am not something more. I am not a collection of members which we call the human body. I am not a subtle air distributed through these members. I am not a wind, a fire, a vapor, a breath, nor anything at all which I can imagine or conceive, because I have assumed that all these were nothing. Without changing that supposition, I find that I only leave myself certain of the fact that I am somewhat. But perhaps it is true that these same things which I supposed were non-existent, because they are unknown to me, are really not different from the self which I know. I am not sure about this. I shall not dispute about it now. I can only give judgment on things that are known to me. I know that I exist, and I inquire what I am, I whom I know to exist. But it is very certain that the knowledge of my existence taken in its precise significance does not depend on things whose existence is not yet known to me. Consequently, it does not depend on those which I can feign in imagination. And indeed, the very term feign in imagination proves to me my error. For I really, for I really do this if I image myself as something. Uh, image, uh, let, let me just say, when he says image myself as something, imagining, right? Uh, back to his quote, since to imagine is nothing else than to contemplate the figure or image of a corporeal thing. But I already know for certain that I am, and that it may be that all these images, and speaking generally, all things that relate to the nature of body, are nothing but dreams and chimeras. For this reason, I see clearly that I have as little reason to say, quote, he's quoting now, I shall stimulate my imagination in order to know more distinctly what I am, than if I were to say I am now awake and I perceive somewhat that is real and true, but because I do not yet perceive it distinctly enough, I shall go to sleep of express purpose so that my dreams may represent the perception with greatest truth and evidence. And thus I know for certain that nothing of all that I can understand by means of my imagination belongs to this knowledge which I have of myself and that it is necessary to recall the mind from this mode of thought with the utmost diligence in order that it may be able to know its own nature with perfect distinctness. But what then am I? A thing which thinks. What is a thing which thinks? It is a thing which doubts, understands, conceives, affirms, denies, wills, refuses, which also imagines and feels. Certainly it is no small matter if all these things pertain to my nature, but why should they not so pertain? Am I not that being who now doubts nearly everything, who nevertheless understands certain things, who affirms that one only is true, who denies all the others, who desires to know more, is averse from being deceived, who imagines many things, sometimes indeed despite his will, 
and who perceives many likewise as by the intervention of the bodily organs. Is there nothing in all this which is as true as it is certain that I exist, even though I should always sleep, and though he who has given me who has given me being employed all his, his ingenuity in deceiving me? Is there likewise any one of these attributes which can be distinguished from my thought or which might be said to be separated from myself? For it is so evident of itself that it is I who doubts, who understands, and who desires that there is no reason here to add anything to explain it. And I have certainly the power of imagining likewise... For although it may happen, as I formerly supposed, that none of the things which I imagine are true, nevertheless, this power of imagining does not cease to be really in use, and it forms part of my thought. Finally, I am the same who feels, that is to say, who perceives certain things, as by the organs of sense. Since in truth I see light, I hear noise, I feel heat. But it will be said that these phenomena are false and that I am dreaming. Let it be so. Still, it is at least quite certain that it seems to me that I see light, that I hear noise, and that I feel heat. That cannot be false. Properly speaking, it is what is in me called feeling. And used in this precise sense, that is no other thing than thinking. So... He, he's working his way back up now, right? And, and that's not really where I want to, um, to lead us. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just to say that that is where he arrived, okay? And for me, this has just always been a very powerful, interesting concept, you know, that, um, that you know, truthfully, um, you cannot know. Uh, that right now, you know, as you're listening to this podcast and, and reflecting or whatever, that you are actually in the place that you are in, that you are actually the person you think you are, that everything that you see and hear is actually in any sense real. Um, but the one thing that you can know for certain and the one piece of information that as as close to capital T uh, truth and as close to capital K knowledge as Western intellectual tradition has thus offered is that I think, therefore I am. What am I? A thing which thinks. And so, you know, in a way to me, I suppose this was earth shattering, groundbreaking, whatever. For a long time, I really did sort of uh, have a problem in orienting myself to the world because uh, I definitely said, well, you know, I. It, it's great to break down, you know, and destroy, you know, an entire system of being and a way of orienting yourself to the world. But if you get too caught up in the idea that it is just a dream and, and just a, a mist, um, then you will find yourself having a very difficult time, um, you know, building too much from that, right? So what you can build from is that you are, and I think this reflects directly back on the stated purpose of, of me doing these podcasts in general, um, that, that we all know that we are a thing uh, which thinks. And what does that mean? That, well, we're capable of thinking, and in fact, the thinking part of us, this, what I've been calling a more logical, reasonable, rational part of us, that part of our brain, uh, is therefore uh, where we should dwell if we're trying to to 
figure these things out or, or, you know, and, and knowing that that part in a sense, it does exist and is real. And really, if you think about it, um, that part, you know, and its ability to, uh, to critically evaluate claims coming from the ego and from our emotional um, component and from this, you know, soundtrack that's constantly, you know, battering us around, um, that not only is that uh, part of the brain um, important and uh, in existence, but in fact, it's the only thing. It, it, it's fundamental to the, whatever we are, right? Whatever you claim human beings as, as a thing are, at our basis, at least if you're following along with this line of thinking, and, and this is why I sort of like this line of thinking, uh, our very basic nature is to be a thing that thinks, that criticizes, that doubts, that imagines, you know. In other words, we are a um, creature or a, uh, an organism with uh, its very foundational nature involved in this type of deep thinking that I'm talking about, right? This is what we do, okay? Um, now, again, these are all choices. We don't have to do this. Um, and again, you know, this is an opinion, but in my opinion, uh, if you don't do this, at least sometimes, uh, then, you know, you're just going to fall into this sort of apathetic, um, cynical uh, sort of orientation to the world um, that lends itself very easily to ideas of, you know, self-righteousness uh, and, and sort of this uh, entitled orientation, in my opinion, to the world. Uh, whereas, you know, if you recognize that there are things you know, things you don't know, um, and, and that it's very, very, very difficult to even get close to proving these things, um, even using the best of logical arguments or reasoning or whatever, that maybe this will cause, as, as has been my experience, one to enter into the, uh, their orientation of the world with you know, a, a basic sort of humbleness, a, a kind of a humility. And I want to say something as regards that. Um, one thing I have discovered for myself, this idea of humility, this idea of, of a humble person, is, um, you know, it's great if others perceive it and, and, and enjoy it, okay? Uh, that's a, absolutely not why you do this. You do this, again, as being something that benefits you. Um, and I can tell you, again, from personal experience, you can literally take two paths. You, uh, I mean, there may be more than, than two. I'm not positing just two. But in general, uh, you, can, uh, you can approach this world and your interactions with it, and, and when you go to your work and your job and you're talking to your friends, uh, from a standpoint of entitlement, and that is where you think that, um, whether you admit it or not, that certain things you are just owed to you, and, and that certain things should just happen because you are who you are and you're entitled to them, um, which I will tell you is, is, a, is a long and shitty road uh, and doesn't end in a good place, okay? Um, the, the other way you can fundamentally approach the world, and again, this is you, it's nothing to do with how people view you or, or you know, trying to get people to be impressed, um, but if you, if you genuinely approach it with humility, uh, with some humbleness and uh, with some uh, thanks, uh, you know, and some recognition of, the, of areas in which you've been extremely blessed as opposed to all the ways in which, you know, folks are conspiring against you, um, 
that if you do approach things that way and you're genuine in this humility within yourself, um, it's going to lead to a much more uh, satisfying, um, meaningful uh, interaction with the world. What you're going to find is that it's easier to communicate, it's easier to listen, uh, and that um, it's much, much easier to drop you know, idiotic notions of um, assuming that you know something about somebody based on their appearance or their clothing or their race or their religion or their politics. Um, you know, again, people are welcome to do as they wish. What I'm telling you is that that will absolutely not get you anywhere closer to truth. It will lead you down, you know, this path in which you'll increasingly you know, be the only person that uh, actually believes in the things that you're believing in. So individual does it become, so many assumptions and um, sort of deceits and, and things have you placed into your own mind. And again, you're welcome to do that. I'm just saying that, um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to think better and, and more perceptibly or just to try to have a better understanding that's, you know, like I said, a little more meaningful or... Um, in specific sense, you know, to know that when you're in a position in life and you feel like you're in this sort of rut that you can't get out of and you can't quite explain, uh, to know that it, it foundationally has to do with the way that you think and the power and um, agency that you give to your ego. And uh, know that if you strengthen and uh, practice diligently with countering the claims of the ego and countering um, the claims of others that are patently false, um, that with time it will get easier. The, the ego won't go away or even change in nature. Uh, what will happen is its volume will simply be turned down a little bit uh, and this will allow you uh, to suspend the sort of judgments and, and immediate knee-jerk reactions um, that are, you know, again, I personally believe that there are a reason why, um, you know, it's in the interest of some in this country to push you along those paths. And that's mainly to keep us separated and divided and, you know, and, and seeking the wrong things and, and interested in, you know, missing the point, basically. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, my contention has always been, um, again, think about the vast variety of this universe and everything that goes in it, and then consider how human beings are utterly and unquestionably unique within it, right? Um, and then think about how different, a, you know, a human is from, say, anything else, right? And, and so then why indeed would we as human beings spend so much time obsessed with that which makes us different from one another, when in fact we are 99.999% the same, and that 0.1% difference only has to do with the environment in which we were raised and, you know, the things that we were taught. And again, um, you know, that it's, it's, it's explainable that why that would have an impact on somebody. It's explainable why um, it would, you know, influence a person in one way or another. And in fact, in some senses, you can't hardly blame somebody for, for going down a bad path. 
At the same time, it's important to know that we have this ability and this uh, gift and, uh, you know, to, to think and, and to be reasonable and to, and to um, consider what it is that we're saying uh, when we're trying to advance, you know, these things. Um, anyway, I am not even sure how long that took or how clear that was. Um, but let me wrap this up by just saying um, that I do appreciate you listening if you made it this far. Um, again, Descartes is a critical thinker, you know, par excellence, and um, that is why uh, he featured throughout this show. Uh, what to expect coming up next? Well, we've got other critical thinkers that I would like to introduce to you, um, and I've alluded to some of them. I think I'm going to spend the next episode um, talking primarily about um, something that has allowed me again to you know, see more clearly or whatever. And it's my hope that most people who, uh, you know, in earnest also pursue these things will find similar results. And that would be Ralph Waldo Emerson and his uh, seminal work, Self-Reliance, which I have found myself in um, more times than I can tell you consulting and referencing, excuse me, referencing back to, you know, Uh, Particularly when, you know, you get to this sense of total alienation, okay? And that's um, that's something we've been hinting at but haven't talked about. And, um, you know, that that point when you become totally alienated um, and and it can happen to anybody, right? Um, He always sort of helped, for whatever reason, for me personally. um, But also it's, you know, again, inarguable that his uh, thought and influence and um, you know, uh, along other transcendentalist thinkers like Henry David Thoreau, uh, you know, have had a huge impact on where we find ourselves today. And moreover than that, um, let's get back to the real heart of what we're talking about here, making you a better critical thinker. Um, and again, it's not about getting caught up in who these people are necessarily or the specifics of the theories. These people are all um, giving us uh, hints, glimpses, Um, little windows, uh, clues into ways that we can fundamentally change our way of viewing the world and, and to make it one that's, that's more encompassing, that makes more sense, you know, that's, that's striving towards these larger truths, right? Um, take care of yourself until the next time we talk. As I said, it will be about my man, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Take care.